Hey guys, this is Gary, and welcome to another episode of Pod Wars. On Pod Wars, we'd like to dissect Star Wars, Marvel, and our favorite little nuggets of geeky media. I'm here today with my favorite protocol droid, Justice. What's up, guys? <laughs> and we are super excited for you to go to the interview ahead. But before we do that, we do have a little bit of news on the Star Wars front that we want to acknowledge here. Justice, can you jump on in? Yes, uh, we recently found out that David Prowse passed away. He was the man in the suit for Darth Vader. He is just a, he's just a great guy. He added so much, you know, the Star Wars universe, and he's gonna be sorely missed. So our thoughts and prayers are with the family. I know this morning I I was uh, a little heartbroken knowing that uh, he passed away, just because he means the character means so much to me, and uh, he did such a phenomenal job. You got anything that you want to say, Gary? Yeah, I just uh, with all these actor deaths involved in properties that we really cherish, I just want to say thank you, and thank you for contributing to something that molded me so much throughout my life and my childhood and really inspired me. So we just want to thank him and have our thoughts and prayers go to his family and just thank him for his work. But all that aside, let's go and celebrate more Star Wars in the light of this passing. We got a great interview ahead here. Justice, can you give the people from the Pod Nation a little introduction here? Uh, of course. We got Tim Naylor, and this guy has a pretty great career. Uh, let me tell you, uh, he worked at ILM, and he's worked on some awesome projects like Pirates of the Caribbean, The Black Pearl, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, and of course, Star Wars, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. And we have such a great time talking about all these different aspects of how he contributed to these movies. I, I haven't laughed so hard in such a long time um, with some of the stories that he tells. Um, and yeah, I just am really excited for you guys to hear this interview. And I, I think two words really encompass what's ahead. Naked Yoda. And on that note, guys, let's dive into it. All right, guys, we are really excited to have Tim Naylor on the show. Tim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Very excited about being here today. So, fun. so for you guys who basically, let's give a little rundown on what Tim's worked on. Some films that are deeply beloved to us. Episode 2 and Episode 3 for the Star Wars prequels. And I have to say, Tim... I've been wanting somebody from the prequels on this show for so long because we are just such huge gushers on those movies. <laughs> Great. Great. But to start things out here, we'd like to hear a little bit on kind of how Star Wars, how the franchise has influenced you kind of growing up and what is your favorite Star Wars movie? Okay. Uh, how, oh, how, it, how it influenced me growing up. Well, I have... It's, it's funny because I have distinct memories when I was a kid. I went over to someone's home. Well, of course, I have, well, I have two really important Star Wars movies because I don't remember the first Star Wars movie. I never saw it. I never saw New Hope in the theaters because I was too young. But my first memory of Star Wars is the, is the Empire Strikes Back trailer on TV and absolutely going like a just freaking out about it. And finally waiting, 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 getting in the theater. And I remember exactly... You know, you guys are movie buffs. These these movies that mean a lot, that kind of like affect your affect you on a soul level. You remember the theater. You remember where you sat. You remember who was around you. So I remember my parents were behind me. My sister, I was on the aisle. My sister was on the left, and the crawl started. And I was just like, 
just shaking because I was, you know, just so excited. And my sister started complaining to about, I want to go. It's way too loud. I'm going, it's supposed to be loud. It's supposed to be loud. You're supposed to, you're not supposed to hear anybody else in the theater. You're just supposed to be reading and just, and she's, I want to go. And so I love my sister. But one of my first memories of just absolutely despising her existence on the planet was us almost having to leave. And it was the first time I was completely like defiant with my parents. I'm like, you, the three of you can go, but I'm sitting right here. Like I'm glued to this seat. No one's going to move me. I'm like, I am one with this chair. I don't care how much like gum is stuck to my bottom. I'm not leaving this space. Everyone can go away. So that was my empire strikes back one. And then I remember, um, getting really into concept art and loving watching it. Cause I went over a friend's home and they had, I'm sure you guys have seen them, but do you remember the big, huge concept art books with Ralph McQuarrie's, yeah. you know, designs and, Oh, and I just, I, you know, all kinds of kids were outside playing and doing whatever they were doing. I just spent probably three hours that day, just combing over every, you know, line of every design that they had in there. Cause it was, it was from empire. So they had the, the Hoth droid, they had all the AT-AT stuff, they had the snowtroopers. I mean, and, and so from there, I just went on like, who does this work? And I remember my mom saying, because I would I would figure out that it was industrial light and magic, and I remember, remember my mom saying, Why don't you write them a letter and just see what they do? You know, and see if you can talk to someone there about, you know, how they do their job. And I said, Mom, those people don't exist. Like that, that, that company doesn't exist. It's not real. Like, you know, is a kid perspective is, of course, it's not real. It's in a galaxy, you know, far, far away. And so I never thought uh, in a million years that I'd actually like walk the halls. And so that to me was um, a really weird kind of life dream come true. And looking back at all the times where Star Wars had an impact on how I grew up, that kind of thing. I never did like baseball cards. I did Star Wars stuff, you know, I, I did, I was always drawing little mechs or stuff like that instead of, you know, trading baseball cards or whatever it might be. So I love that. And I, I have to imagine like going to ILM the first time, it's kind of like the burning bush moment. You take off your sandals cause you're on holy ground. <laughs> um, just losing well, your nerdy well, mind well, in that moment. <laughs> it it kind of was like that. The, the funniest part about it is the, the, email I received about my interview was that I had to find a door. And so they never really wanted anyone to know where they were in the, before we moved to the Presidio. And so in San Rafael, there's this nondescript street called Kerner Boulevard. And in the interview, it said, you need to find a door that says the Kerner Company Optical Research Lab. We suggest that you get here early to reserve time to find the door. And I just went, what? So I, I was in Florida at the time and I flew out to California a day early just to find the door. And so I went down Kerner Boulevard. It's a one way street. I went down Kerner Boulevard like five or six times. Couldn't find a door that said, I mean, it was a, it's an industrial area. And then as I, as I pulled over, I looked to the right and someone had opened the blinds to one of the buildings. And I saw an Egyptian statue about this big sitting on one of the desks and I, and mummy, had the money, mummy two had just come out, and I went, Oh my gosh, nobody has an Egyptian statue, <laughs> you know, that big, just sitting on their desk, especially because mummy just came out. And so I just walked to that window and then I walked along. And sure enough, I found the door that said the Kerner Company Optical Research Lab. 
And then the next day when I went for my interview, I opened it up and there's Vader right there when you walk in. So yes, the, the Holy ground thing of like, do I take off my sandals before I walk in or <laughs> cleanse myself? What ritual thing do I need to do? Do I, you know, wh- whatever it is to get through the, the threshold for my interview, I was it's, ready to, you know, sacrifice a chicken, whatever it took. <laughs> it kind of sounds like one of those spy restaurants where you have to like give a code before you can get Oh, in. it really was. It cracked. It, they're like, oh, you found the door. Good for you. That's a first step in knowing that you're competent. You found the door. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> well, also, I, I appreciate this now. We're, we're learning from people on the show. What are the code names for all these big projects? I think it was for anything Avengers. It's a mayonnaise commercial. And now it's what? Kerner <laughs> Optical is for ILM. So forever around <laughs> Hollywood, we see those two things. That's when we got to be yes. snooping. Yeah. And if you take a tour on the Presidio, they had the door. They took the door with them. And as you walk the hall on the Presidio, you could there's a door. And it was funny watching people do tours because they would stop and they look at the door. And they're like, I wonder what movie that was from. And all the ILMers would be like, hee, 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 they don't know. Hee, <laughs> look at all the tour people. <laughs> so there it is, the, the door, the Kerner Company Optical Research Lab door. There it is. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so great. Okay, before we dive into some of your work, we have some questions here on kind of the newest properties in Star Wars. So to start out, we were even talking about this in the soundcheck. Can you tell us your thoughts a little bit on The Mandalorian, how much you've seen? What do you think about it so far? Okay, so I just finished two nights ago the first episode of season two. Watched the first one. Um, I love that the internet is ablaze with Baby Yoda, um, which I think is adorable. I love that there's um, almost a redemptive quality of kind of the Boba Fett, Jango Fett line of line of characters, right? That they're always bounty hunters, but yet there's a redemptive quality to this particular one. Um, I love that twist on what we normally think or attach to the vis- visibility of villainy, right? That you get used to with the Boba Fett kind of characters. And then all of a sudden you've got this, oh, it's going to be full bounty hunter you know, it's going to be pure villain awesomeness. And then it turns out to be this really great story about there's this tenderness and relationship between this child alien and this, you know, bounty hunter guy. I love that twist on it. I think that's beautiful. It represents a lot about the Star Wars world because it was always just this beautiful blend between the humanity of what was actually happening and the forces of good and evil and connection and characters that we loved um, and the actual cool tech part that we all love so much. That's part of the Star Wars universe. So I, I really am enjoying The Mandalorian. I, I think um, that the extensions of the universe, like Rogue One, have been really enjoyable. Because we, we always have been so consumed, I think, sometimes with the archetypal friendships that have are the main line throughout the series. It's really nice to see uh, the history play out, right? So it's like if we've never seen, uh, you know, films or documentaries from other parts of history. And then as you learn history, it's impactful. It, like watching Rogue One was impactful going, oh, so this is what these people went through to get the Death Star plans. Oh, that's what they referred to. Oh, that's kind of cool. But now we kind of see it and know it. So the expan- I've enjoyed the expansion of the, of, the, uh, of the world, of the universe. I've enjoyed it. Yeah, and I, I do agree. People are really loving on this idea of just enjoying the Star Wars universe, not just the Skywalker saga. And that's come from somebody, I love every bit of the Skywalker saga, but there's just so mm-hmm. much depth and breadth to the universe. And he even yeah. mentioned like um, the 
Empire Strikes Back concept art in you haven't gotten to it yet but the second episode of season two you got some unused empire concept art thrown in there with some alien oh, no characters. Way. so Ooh. so prepare for some juiciness ahead i'm just i'm excited right. for you because there's some awesome episodes i know what i'm doing tonight then <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> when everyone's sleeping i know what i'm going back to my concept art roots my empire concept art roots that's awesome I, I'm I'm really glad that you shared that you've only seen the first episode because there are some massive spoilers and uh, I was very afraid that it, I, I don't want to spoil it for you because it's it, there's some really cool stuff so thank you okay <laughs> uh, but um, I am curious what are your what are your thoughts on the the sequel trilogy um, now that it's uh, in completion oh man this is a tough one um, I've read a ton of debates online because mainly surrounding Luke's character. And I personally struggled with that. Um, I, you know, as, as, as you grow up and you look back on Luke's character in A New Hope and you see kind of this whiny kid that has to go tr through trial, loss and persecution. And that forms who he becomes, not just as a man, but as a Jedi as well, of course. Right. And what and his purpose to save his friends, his ability to risk uh, where he places his value um how he sees people in terms of seeing the good invader all of these concepts were born out of the loss the pain and the suffering from the first two films so there was a there was a, a maturity that i watched as a young kid growing up and i kind of felt like that was a little lost in the way he was portrayed in the last, you know, two out of the three films in terms of um, his un unwillingness to see the larger picture of what was really happening. And that was a struggle for me to kind of look at this iconic character who went from this young, whiny kid who just wanted something for himself that was willing to sacrifice as much as he could for his friends, only to turn around and not do that later. It was a challenge for me to watch that characterization of him was difficult to watch. I was frustrated most of the time uh, with his character. Um, and so I struggled with that. And I, and I, I know that there's probably an element of the need to do that, to allow other characters to take more space up in the storyline, right? You've got Ray. So you, you need other characters to take more space I just wonder if there was a different way to portray some of that. You know what I mean? In terms of him not, and, and I get the, um, I get the guilt and shame of his relationship with Kylo Ren and how that maybe forced him into the shame of how that went, forced him into his, the condition that we found him as an audience. Um, but I kind of struggled with him not even connecting with, Leia, you know, like it seemed like there was a period of time and I get that shame can do that, but I don't feel like the concept of shame was brought out enough that you felt empathy for what had happened. That's just me. So I struggled with it. I love the new characters. I loved, I loved their relationship and how they were built and formed, but that part of the transformed Luke, I felt I lost a little bit of that and I had to wrestle with that. 
I think that's one of the biggest critiques that is hard to reconcile is that a lot of people do love the new characters. It's more so either the current portrayal or lack of portrayal of the old characters. It's just hard to reconcile in your brain after the hero's story is done in the original trilogy. And then he kind mm-hmm. of regresses, for lack of a better word. Right. And, and you watch Leia and you see her fortitude. You see her resilience. You see her hope. And that is continuing to pervade the ability for people to continue in the rebellion. And, and that quality and character in her was always consistent. But I, I almost felt like Luke surpassed that hope and that regenerative kind of desire to see balance. And then it seemed like he just didn't even want to deal with it. And then we're, when present, and I get that sometimes you, um, sometimes you believe in things so much and then they fail you and you go through a period of rejecting them. And I think the link to Kylo Ren was important, but, um, and I, I didn't write the script and I don't, I, and I, how about this? It's very difficult to critique when you never carried the mantle of the responsibility of the rebirth of the, of star Wars on your shoulders. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, right? So it's tough to weave into characters that so many kids at the time connected with and f- helped form their childhood and to try to communicate what loss and things do to people and his, like, even rejection of the, you know, like, I'm going to burn down the temple, um, you know, the books and everything about it. There's a part of adulthood where sometimes you get into a season of life where that makes sense to you. It was just it's almost like you didn't want your childhood character to get there, you know? Yeah. Like you can reconcile like logically how Luke ended up there and it can make sense. It's just kind of, you have to mourn for a moment that this awesome character has gotten to that point. And it's just a little disappointing, you know, it's classic parent answer. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. Exactly. 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 Yeah, so that was that was that was tough to take, and um, I I think out of the, out of the last three, the very last one, uh, Rise Scour was definitely my favorite. Um, that's a hot take. Yeah, it was, that's for me. That was um, because, um, well, the Han Solo issue was a separate issue for me too, in terms of how that went down. But watching the new characters form their friendships was the repeated pattern. Um, and I actually, how, how about this? If you're going to repeat, repeat patterns in star Wars, I didn't like the repeat of the, you know, like almost the structural components of a new hope repeated again in the force awakens. I didn't uh, really take to that. What I'm talking about in terms of the repeating of your friends coming together in, in against all odds, I liked how our new characters came together in the same way in Rise of Skywalker. And that, and that it wasn't a uh, Death Star kind of, <laughs> kind of event thing. Yeah, I it did, wasn't I didn't like... super repetitive, you know? Correct. The, the part that you wanted to see repeated in new characters in terms of how they connect and how they bond together and rely on each other and the, the concept of strong friendship can, do, can, can create change was an important concept from the first three movies that I think I liked 
watching that repeated theme culminate in the rise of Skywalker. I liked that part of it. Yeah, while also adding in some new flavor. And I imagine it had to... Were you on the excited boat for Palpatine coming back or kind of in the apprehensive boat? Because it seemed like it was one reaction or the other from Star Wars fans. Oh, I I actually liked it. Because um, I, I never... Um, I never really... Besides Vader, I never, th- I never felt like any of the other villainry captured kind of the creepiness of the emperor because because the different the difference is that no one else like the emperor had this quiet strategy right you knew he was strategic by the almost the way he didn't say things so you you know like i love in return of the jedi the scene where he's just sitting there and he's just patient in his chair and you've got the whole battle outside the window with the little blips of explosions going on you don't hear it's silent and there his, you know, it's just t- time equals danger for his friends and his family. And what is the emperor doing? Just being patient. And that strategy, that's not even tactical. That's purely strategic. And that's like the epitome of like pure villainy to be quiet when you're facing your foes because you know you've got them beat in your mind. And that I don't think any other that any other villain really represented that level of like darkness. I don't know if that makes sense. Which I think he exemplifies a lot in the prequels of that basically being face to face with his enemy 24 seven and keeping that calm composure. It's just incredible. Yes. And, and I didn't think anyone else, anyone else exhibited that capability. And so for me, he was always like the height of danger to the galaxy, to the rebellion, to Luke, to the family. He represented that because everyone is a pawn. Because he he was very clear that he was willing to replace Vader and do the same thing to Skywalker because Skywalker had more power mm-hmm. in his mind. So that's super, like, I'll cast you away and I'll just keep just churning the wheel of who I want to do my dirty work. That's way more dangerous than Vader, for me at least. So I, I kind of appreciated that they, and the fact that they brought him back in not like his full, almost like as that weird clony, you know, weirdness almost made it even worse because he really was almost truly soulless at that point. Yeah. Just the imagery of that clone Palpatine is terrifying. Yeah. Cause you can't redeem that. Right. Like in, in, in my mind, like there's no, like there was the possible redemption for Vader, because you had Anakin embedded within the harsh exterior, there was still a chance. In a soulless clone of Palpatine, there was no, in my mind, there was no chance that Rey could convince him to, you know, turn to the, to the light, you know, right? So now you're, now you're like, okay, so this really is the enemy of all enemies. This is the, this, here it is. We just have to battle it out. And so I liked it in that regard. Especially when you have a thousand Siths. Sith people singing songs. Yeah, yeah. that kind of helps. <laughs> yeah, right. It gets a good aesthetic. Now, yeah. before we dive into, because we're going to go deep into the prequels here, let's do kind of what we call more of our Spitfire session here, because you have a lot of other yeah. works that we'd love Yeah, that give a little uh, quick blurb for our listeners that you worked on. Some of them being Pirates of the Caribbean, working on Curse of the Black Pearl and Dead Man's Chest, and Transformers. And also, speaking of movies that 
often don't get enough love. You worked on the first Hulk movie as well. Can you kind of spitfire through some of those? Anything you remember from those projects? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the Pirates ride, and when we first heard that we were doing Pirates, um, there wasn't a ton of interest internally. It's like, oh, you're going to be on the Pirate Show. And I got moved from Hulk onto the Pirate Show because it was our first movie that we were really trying out this software from Autodesk called Maya to do our 3D work. Um, and so I had some Maya experience, so they moved me off of Hulk onto Pirates. And at first I wasn't, I wasn't too excited about it because I like the concept of Hulk smash. Um, and then um, it, it's funny because you do, in visual effects, you do so much work in silence. So explosions that are filmed, a lot of dialogue. If you're not an animator, you don't hear the dialogue. Um, there's no sound effects. You you basically get just the imagery. You don't get any of the sound. So a lot of times we don't know what anything sounds like from creatures with the voices aren't cast maybe even yet um, to like machinery. You don't hear things. And so sometimes you watch little clips of the film and you're trying to get an idea of what's going on. And I remember a couple of days where we were watching, they would send us like a sequence of of, of the film and you would maybe hear dialogue sometimes, sometimes not. And I remember people laughing at pirates with no sound. Hmm. And that you kind of know that things are going to, that it could be a really good movie. Like, oh my gosh, this is actually surprising. We're kind of laughing at this. And it's like watching a silent movie from the 20s in vibrant HD color. And you're getting what's happening. And the content without any audio clue is funny enough that people universally are kind of chuckling at it. That's a good sign. So that was an interesting part to Pirates. I think uh, for me, I worked on Davy Jones. And so for me, technically, that was the hardest thing. One of the hardest things that I worked on at ILM was Davy Jones. So I was I was um, the character TD, well, Rigger, the puppeteer, um, that put in the animation controls for the animators on Davy Jones. And we had to, um, you know, of course, figure out the tentacles and the beard. And so I wrote uh, a bunch of technology uh, there was two groups of technology. There was the R&D people that did the simulation so that the tentacles could like intersect with each not intersect, but kind of collide with each other. And also they would dial in the, these cool, cool algorithms to like make his tentacles um, twist and turn based on his emotional state. And then I was responsible for writing the technology that allowed the animators to manually move different tentacles. So we wrote the system to where I would help the, if the animator ever wanted to make a tentacle active for hand animation, they would just click a couple buttons and then they could move it with hand animation and then everything else would get simulated later when the animation was done. So like all the times where he brings out the key or when he's playing the piano um, or Will is trying to get, you know, the key out and he's holding, you know, like with the chopsticks, he's kind of like holding, uh, holding up the tentacles. So that was fun to watch uh, because a lot of times what I do on the character technology side you don't actually physically see on the screen but you just see the results of the animators moving your stuff around so that was fun to work on such an iconic character i remember um we had real challenges wondering if we could actually pull off davy jones's full cg especially the eyes and i remember one day uh at ilm you had this thing called media view and we loved media view because you'd come in you'd have your coffee you'd sit and everyone would pull up media view and it was all the renders from the night before. And you could see different shots in progress and you could watch different shows. But I remember 
everyone would come in and there was just with this one day at ILM where there was a shot where he like David Jones turns and he looks into the sunlight and you could see the sunlight go across his eyes and it looked completely real. And you would literally physically hear people go, whoa, hey, did you guys see? Whoa, did you guys see this? Did you guys see it? And it just went like wildfire internally. And it was this moment where like, oh my gosh, okay, we can actually do David Jones. We could do it. We could do this. Let's keep going. We, it, can, it can actually work and we can make them full CG. So it was just that amazing moment where the studio realized that, yes, we can actually technologically and artistically actually accomplish that character. Um, for Transformers, I was the rigging supervisor. So I was in charge of a team of uh, riggers that came up with all the technology to um, do the transformation. So go from car to robot, robot to car. Hmm. So we wrote technology together. Um, it was very difficult because Michael Bay really wanted to direct even little pieces and parts. So I remember there's a scene where Optimus is talking. Um, oh my gosh, who's Shia LaBeouf's character? I can't remember his name. Sam Wickwicky. Thank you. So he's talking to him at, at the window and you could see like it was a three quarter shot and you could see a bunch of gears and they were doing nothing. I remember Michael going, why aren't those moving? Why is that spinning? Why? And we, and it just, Oh no, he wants like different pieces and parts to be moving as the character's talking. And so we had to go back and revise our entire strategy on how to get those characters done. Oh. So we built a system. Yeah. Each robot was about 80,000 parts. And so we had to build a system where typically what happens is an animator gets a set of animation controls that they can move the character around. And those are very static in nature. Like you can't really change them. So we had to figure out a way to allow the animators to change whatever they wanted, move any pieces and parts any way they wanted and have that change live in the character all the way until it was finally rendered. So that was the big challenge that they could group parts together and move parts and change the pivots on parts to do whatever they wanted to do. Um, and so that was a huge uh, win for us in terms of uh, me and a lot of other people on my team that were uh, figuring that kind of technology out. So it was very cool. It was very fun. It's fun. A lot of smart people worked on that. And then you had to add in like 80,000 explosions in the background because it is Michael Bay. <laughs> It's Michael Bay. So, yeah. So then all of your hard work gets occluded by a big boom <laughs> every five seconds and you're done. <laughs> I'm curious. You were talking about uh, the having like people seeing different parts of pirates coming in and whatnot. And when you think about Disney, it's, you know, happy, friendly, kitty stuff. And then the first movie, it, I think it's so special because it's it's got that scary element to it. Were, were you like when you first saw, I guess, the, um, you know, the pirates go into the skeleton form were you shocked or like surprised at all i'm not really into i'm not a horror guy but when when i see concept art like that i'm i just i'm like i want to create that i want to do that i, I love that um and and the there's a really fun challenge in visual effects when you know that something is integrated well so we worked for a long time on the shot where barbosa comes you know into the moonlight to match exactly where his clothing was Right. So you've got like his exactly where this fold was. You had people frame by frame making sure that that 3D geometry was matching exactly. So the transition would look perfect. And, and when those things come together and you do it, I, I don't know, there's there, there's a level of job satisfaction there. That's really amazing when you see a team of people come together um, 
and everyone contributes that their artistry level is like way above yours. It's just absolutely incredible. You're just blown away. It's, it's fun to be blown away every day by what other people can do. And, and just to be able to contribute into that was great. Now, I think it's time that we dive into the deep end of Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith here. Here we go. <laughs> so, okay. To start out here, you're coming in, and did you work at all with Phantom Menace, or did you come in with it? You came in with Attack of the Clones, correct? Attack of the Clones, yes. They needed, um, they needed extra people, and um, I had a bunch. Man, my interview was tough. I had, I had tons of interviews. And then they flew me out for an interview, and I was terrified, but I seemed to get through it enough, so it worked. So yeah, it was for Attack of the Clones. Yeah. So what was the overall mood of, I mean, yourself, your coworkers coming in, both knowing that you're creating more for Star Wars, as well as kind of the unfortunately mixed reaction to Phantom Menace? Well, there was there was a couple things. One is Phantom Menace, apart from story the ability for a studio to get that many computer graphic shots through a pipeline was, it was, you know, it's the same time when Pixar was really getting movies out there. So it was this, um, discovery days of what computer graphics can really do. And in terms of, and also for characters. So for me, star Wars was always cool tech and cool monsters so the chance to like even get near any of that was I, I don't care what people thought of Phantom Menace, I'm going. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to get as close as I can and and to figure out how they do it. You know, like I want I remember how much Jurassic Park influenced me, Terminator 2 influenced me. Um I just wanted to peek behind the wizard's curtain and just be like, oh my gosh, so this is how they do that. So Attack of the Clones for me was um it was an eight-month-long contract. So I knew I was coming back home, which never happened. I've been here for 20 years. Um, but I thought, okay, well, I'll get eight months of just absorbing and learning and seeing how they do what they do and super high-end uh, visual effects work. So there was an excitement about that. I think the, the big challenge on Attack of the Clones was migrating Yoda to a digital representation. That was scary. Um, and I think the breadth of the movie was scary. And it was the first time that we were doing a lot of um, like digital cloth. So for me, I, I came in to do um, character TD work. So rigging and, pu- pu- you know, do digital puppeting of the characters. And they moved me onto the cloth simulation team. And I'd never done cloth simulation. And so it was an incredibly scary time because it was new tech and I had never done it before. So it was quite the challenge to shift when you get there. It was on-the-job training for sure. So it was a big challenge. Now, you mentioned Yoda there. So that's always a hot topic of debate among Star Wars fans on CGI versus puppet Yoda. Now, obviously, Attack of the Clones has Yoda doing flips like crazy, and there's no chance in hell they could get a puppet to do that. What is your (laughs) kind of opinion on the CGI versus puppet Yoda? (sighs) Um... How can I put it? Oh man, this is this is hard because I I saw the question I was thinking and I thought I put a lot of thought into it. So all right, so I'll 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 do it. When when you watch um, Frank Oz have control over the puppet and have that synchronicity between his voice and and what he's actually moving, 
you your suspension of disbelief that it's a rubber puppet and a foam puppet kind of goes out the window because the dialogue is intense. Um, who the character is matters so much, right? Like Yoda's design and and the contrast of his capabilities brought you into an acceptance space that I think is pretty unique for that character because of his wisdom, the longevity of his life, you know, and we didn't know everything about how he got there when we were first introduced to him. The CGI one, I liked episode three because just because our technology was a lot different in terms of the way we were able to render them. Um, and I would say episode two is more about, could we do it? That was the test. And there was, there was a lot of conversations on whether or not we could do it. And if we could make it be the character, the problem is that you, we saw Yoda in the prequels in a much more decrepit state where there wasn't a ton of acting um, in terms of walking around and talking, whereas the prequels kind of required a lot of that, especially in episode three. So, and episode two with him fighting Dooku. So it kind of lent itself to be more CG anyway. So we kind of had to step through that threshold because the story kind of required that transformation. Um, here's what I would say on, on that is what I remember is the day uh, someone came into my room, a, a great animator's name is Jamie Wheelis. And he said, Hey, I, I have a challenge for you. Uh, I was just in dailies with George and he really doesn't like some things that we're doing with Yoda. Um, specifically, he pointed out that his ears weren't wiggling. Hmm. And I went, huh? He said, yeah. Um, and we didn't put his ears in wiggling because we thought that's what a foam puppet does. Right? So when you move your head, and this isn't foam, they don't wiggle and bounce if you were a real, live, you know, true, living being. Uh, but the puppet did because it was, you know, bouncy foam. But there was something about that missing movement that bothered George because George really knew his character. And so one of the first things I did on that, it was for, yeah, it was episode two, was like build a little noise tool so animators would just move the head control and all that classic bounciness would just get encoded from the head movement. So we got the bounce back in the ears. But it was interesting that George knew the character well enough to say, I want the, where's the, where's the bounce in his ears? That's not Yoda. So he knew all that encompassed the character. So that I think is maybe sometimes what people might miss is how well he knew his character. Which is interesting that you mentioned that because that's something they've really leaned into with the Mandalorian and baby Yoda on just the ears. And that's something everyone just adores. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting that that kind of came back just back with your work over on uh, Attack of the Clones. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was it was an interesting. It's those little things that you. Um, what is it? It's the absence of detail makes it fake, right? It's the absence of the the detail of every single movement really um, makes it fake. I I worked a lot with animators who worked on Yoda, um, and they're. Uh, the pressure they put on themselves to reconnect with what Frank Oz and what George wanted out of the character for the audience was really special to watch. It was like, um, it was like artists at a museum, you know, like restoring art, right? It was that level of like curation. It wasn't just animation. It was like curating a character through 
dialogue. It was really, I was blown away by that. It was pretty fascinating to watch. Now, I'd like to give a little shout out here because we uh, we reached out to some of our listeners on Twitter. And I got to give a cool. shout out to Force Losers Podcast because we asked people of, for some questions to ask you. And all they replied was, Did, was there ever a moment when somebody looked at the Yoda battle and said, just throw in more flips? Because <laughs> I adore that battle because he's just flipping like crazy. <laughs> and as like a kid watching Dagobah scenes, like that's what I dreamed of seeing with Yoda. <laughs> Jaw hit the floor with that part. <laughs> Right, right. Well, there's, there's, right, there's the whole debate and the two schools of thought of, you know, the two of them should be doing these epic battles, but meditating, like on different planets, like that's how strong they, you know, should be, or they should only be standing still and, you know, moving things. And I, all I, (laughs) I wasn't a huge fan of, of the flips. But I think there was this idea that the Jedi had a way to fight and it wasn't always mind tricks and it wasn't always using their mind that they actually had, a you know, like a knight really wanted to get close. They had to get closer to, to their enemy in some, in some way. So there, so I can appreciate that if he's small and that's what he needs to do, then okay. I, what I remember out of it is the funnier parts that most people didn't get a chance to see, which is all of the bloopers. So most of the Yoda fight, I kind of chuckle at only because the times where we would, you know, he would spin and we would put the robe on and do the claws him and all of his clothes would go flying off and you would just see naked Yoda all the time, all the time. <laughs> and so it was, I mean, I've seen way too much naked Yoda flying and bouncing all over the place because his robe would explode and his robe would go flying over there and we'd have to. And so we did so many tests and there were, there were some amazing people who, like I remember, the, the cloth lead, oh, they were like James Tooley was the supervisor. Juan Sanchez was, was like the lead who, who really helped me during that time, um, really knew how to, how to, the character and how to deal with the robe. And finally, you know, we got, we got it right. And, uh, but, you know, really hysterical bloopers is what I remember <laughs> doing Yoda. Like Mike Bailog did this one, Sim, where he was walking down the plank on Attack of the Clones and he was, you know, he got off the, the uh, clone ship, you know, he was asking like, what's the stack? I can't remember exactly the dialogue, but his toe caught his robe. And he's asking this really important question to a clone commander and his robe just goes, Zook! and he just undresses himself in front of everybody. And the clones, the clones, the dialogue, they're kind of looking, they kind of look at each other, but without the dialogue there, he just disrobes himself and the clones kind of look at each other like, what's up with this guy? Like, what's going on here? What is this guy doing? And so I only remember, I only remember Yoda fight bloopers, unfortunately. But, um, <laughs> and I know that's not giving your audiences maybe what they want in that terms, but. Um, um, are you kidding? Everyone <laughs> wants some naked Yoda here. I mean, yeah, that's stuff yeah, only that's I remember. Like, <laughs> animators and Yaddle have been privy to. <laughs> I had one scene, I had one scene where he, where he, holds up the rocks and that was my one Yoda um, robe sim from the fight holding up the rocks. So I'm, I was part of that, which was good. That was, that was a good moment. So I enjoyed that. Now we also had another person from Twitter, Brad from the Scuttlebutt podcast asked, what was the most challenging part working on uh, episode two? Man, episode two for us honestly was the clothing. Um, Cause that for me, it was, well, I would say there, there's, there were two, there was, um, the clothing was hard cause it was, it was really brand new. Um, and it would keep coming the, off the characters apparently. 
Yes, exactly. And and it was just this, you know, there's this thing about doing, you never want to do development in the middle, a development of a technology in the middle of production. But most of the time in movies, since there's something new that people are trying to do, that's the environment that you're in is you're constantly dealing with some form of beta software um, that's proprietary, that typically isn't resourced as much as it maybe should be. But the people that on our you know, writing this stuff are like PhD level genius, awesome people who, who have to work with artists. And eventually you get into a stride and a flow of doing it. Um, I was in the camp of, so I'll, I'll give you a funny story about working with clothing. When I got shifted to do Clossim, I was still in training. And, you know, the first training they do is they, they give you like a cone and a sphere that looks like an ice cream cone and a plane. And they want you to just drop the plane and have it drip over the sphere to look like, you know, like chocolate melting on an ice cream cone. And every time I ran it, the thing would bounce off and go flying. It would knock the sphere off. Stuff would explode. My machine would start smoking. I mean, I was the worst at it. And I would look to the, to my friend, um, Andrea Maiolo, who is an Italian guy who came from uh, Square in Hawaii, and he was still in training, but he was simming the shot where Obi-Wan was sliding down, um, fighting with Jango Fett in the rain. And he got it to, and he was getting all the shots to pretty much work. So it was, it was a personal challenge. It was a studio challenge. And I think, um, no matter how people view the CG aspects of Yoda, I, I can still stand and say it was pretty amazing feat that we pulled off to do as much clothing as we did in that movie. We did a ton. We did, you know, Tanwi, um, you know, the, the really tall aliens were the first ones that I, that I worked on. Um, it was just, this, it, anytime you bring on new tech um, and then you've got a major character like Yoda that you have to push the new tech onto is a scary proposition for any uh, visual effects studio. So that was hard. Which, I mean, they did already break a ton of ground with Jar Jar Binks in The Phantom Menace. Yep. And so yep. you at least had some groundwork, but you're taking it to like the nth degree with Yoda. Yeah, there, there was no physics going on with Jar Jar. That was all like skinned information. And so literally with Yoda and a ton of other characters that had the clothing, it was literally a physics simulation. So in the computer, we were able to build gravity and mass and forces and encode that into the geometry that was Yoda's robe. And so we had to develop all these kind of tools of when he was sitting still, how to make sure his robe would settle properly and stay settled because it wanted to build up a lot of energy. There's all these springs and, you know, it's, it's literally a phys physics equation, set of equations and algorithms that are running in the computer and you're just hoping nothing explodes. And sometimes I get a call at midnight and someone from render from render support would say your simulation crashed and we don't know why. And so I'd have to figure out, you know, the next morning what happened. And you only had a certain amount of time. It was a very interesting thing. You, you only had a certain amount of time to get your shot done. And you knew how long the simulations typically ran. And so you knew mathematically pretty clear how many chances you had to get it right. Depending on the length of the shot and what Yoda was doing, that became a very difficult challenge for people. So we would have to do all these weird things of like, if Yoda was walking or sitting or fighting, we started eventually to build these presets of like, okay, he's fighting. 
or he's doing something more dynamic, we could apply those properties and hopefully get a better result quicker. But that was until the movie, that was until way, way, way later in the film's production where we were able to get to that level. So it was quite the challenge. Now, obviously the prequels, and in our opinions as biased fans of the prequels, (laughs) have been receiving a lot of, well, both love and hate as of late. I mean, the sequels, I feel like, have kind of revived the prequels in many people's minds. But overall, (laughs) what is your thoughts on kind of the good and the bad, quote-unquote, for the prequel trilogy, and how has it kind of changed as you've watched this fandom? Well, I, I loved... Uh, the, the thing that I really appreciated about the prequels was we. it was a window into a mysterious world that we only had small hints of, um, you know, in episode four, five, and six, right? So any talk of Jedi, any talk of Sith, any talk of, you know... Um, the empire's roots and how it all started and the, you know, the Republic, all, all of those sentiments were still very mysterious when we were growing up, right? There was all this speculation of what that time period really looked like. I really appreciate in the prequels that we kind of, it rounded that out. Like, Oh, it was almost watching history, right? Okay. So we knew where we were at, but we, and we knew there were all these links to things, you know, the, the whole concept of the clone wars and the, and the, like that just, sent your imagination reeling when Obi-Wan, you know, was telling me, you know, like I fought with your father in the Clone Wars. Like you're, you're like the, what, the, what, how did that, what do you mean? Fought how were you Jedi? What was that? Um, so I really loved in the prequels that we got to see what the universe really looked like. Cause I felt like we got a sliver of the universe in, you know, new hope, um, you know, onward. So it really expanded our understanding of how we got to this one, you know, unique storyline. So I like that about the prequels. Um, I, uh, for me, episode three, Revenge of the Sith was definitely my favorite of the prequels because it was the one that I, I enjoyed working on the most. Um, and I felt like it had the most direct link to my childhood in terms of the setup, right. For episode Four. It was it was a it was a good setup for that, and I really appreciated. It, it felt more like a Star Wars film than the others to me personally. That's what it felt like. I feel like it would be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, Revenge of the Sith because that is arguably one of my favorite Star Wars films. So, um, what were some of the scenes, or what were you doing on uh, Revenge of the Sith? The Revenge Revenge of the Sith for me was a was a a really fun time at ILM. Um, I was able to do a couple other films before that. So I, I kind of felt like I knew more about how ILM operated. I knew a little bit more about how Star Wars shows go. We, um, through the Pirates experience, we were transitioning over to a, a software called Maya that I'd mentioned before that I had some experience in. So I kind of, I kind of went to town on developing animation tools and for the animators and, um, rigging tools and I had a chance to work on organic characters and a ton of mechanical stuff. So, um, a ton of spaceships. I rigged the buzz droid. That was my first rig that I ever got to do, uh, at ILM. So the buzz droid was really fun because it came, it came to me, not, not in the sphere. So I had to figure out how to put it back together in the little sphere and then how to pop it open for the animators to 
pop it open. And then um, I wrote a really fun tool where the legs of the buzz droid, because it had so many legs, the opportunity for on the close-ups for the animators to stick the leg like into the ship's surface, which is too high. So I wrote a tool where the leg would not, we would find the uh, point on the surface where it couldn't go any further. So writing tools to help animators' lives get better was really fun for me. Um, I rigged R2-D2, which was super like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm rigging R2. So I rigged all of his internal little things. So when um, when they do the, uh, you know, like R- when Obi-Wan asks R2 to do the distraction um, on the Fed Cruiser with uh, General Grievous and he opens up everything, that was all like the stuff I rigged. So I really loved that. Um, I got to work on the Fed Cruiser breaking up. I worked on the little walkie guys and like, for me, it wasn't, it was, it was the, t- it was a time where I transitioned from seeing one asset and one character as a way to work to really getting into something we call pipeline. So in the space battle, um, we realized how long it would take animators to like put a clone pilot into one of the ships or put Anakin into a ship and fly it around or R2 into Anakin's ship. And so the time that it was bid for animators to do that by hand to, you know, cause sometimes you get close to the ships, you don't really know. Um, it would take them numerous days to get everything set up. So I wrote a tool where you could it, for across the entire movie, any, you could bring in any asset character and put it onto any star Wars vehicle. So if you wanted, um, a Wookiee to ride one of the little Scott Walker things. You would just bring in a Wookiee, bring in the Scott Walker, and then you would load up my tool and you'd be like, crew it. And we would, the animator would have done a prepose of a character. And then I would record that digitally and store it in like an offline database. And it would just call that character up and you just get the Wookiee sitting there ready to go. So automation um, became a really big theme for me on that film. And I really loved making tools to make in like, just putting lightsabers in characters' hands for the battle between Anakin and um, Obi-Wan was just a click of a button eventually for people. It was like, click, click, or I just want this ship to be crewed, click, click, and off I go. And so I, on episode three was kind of like this time where I got to work on shots, um, assets, and rig individual assets, mechanical stuff, spaceships, characters, and do a ton of tools. I love that. Like, um, I helped work on... Um, we had real problems in the space battle because the further away you get from the origin and computer graphics, the, the resolution at 32 bit really has a problem. And so there was a shot where you, you know, you, you follow all the spaceships along and at the end it zooms up to R2 and we were having real problems because R2 would wobble all the time in the renders. And it took us a while to figure out, Oh, it's because he's so far away from the origin. Cause we almost did it at scale that it was so far that the, that his position was bouncing around because the full point on the computer was bouncing so high that R2 would be in different space. It looked like it was glitching. And so that would happen with anything digital rendered. And so I helped write a tool to where we would bring every shot in the space battle. We would remove all of the movement and center it around the origin in the computer to solve all those problems. So those were really hard technical problems to take the entire space battle and figure out how to like move its motion around so that we can render it properly. 
I was going to say, that space battle, one, is one of the best scenes, I think, in the prequels. But I, I have to imagine that was just a technical nightmare because you have them fighting in three dimensions, large-scale yep. battle, and then going deep on, like you said, with like the detailed close-up work. It had to have just been an immense project. It was... We spent months and months on the space battle. It was ridiculous how many ships were in there um there was these there was these tools for like auto destruction when things got hit there was these tools where um ships would just go and then you could like tds would just encode how it would fire and you would just like all that laser stuff was happening automatically because people would program it it was really fascinating to watch that get assembled it took a long time it was really hard and i know why they didn't do the practical route because it was just too much. You know, like if you look at the space battles in the past, they were, there were a couple of shots that had a lot of ships in it, but not a ton of really moving where the space battle was just this continuous, like every pixel on the screen was filled with something going on. It was, it was intense. It was good. It was fun. That was, I, I, um, my first, like I screwed up really bad moment at Island was also episode three. Um, I did something on the buzz droid rig, which would screw up in the renders. It would like flip the buzz droid accidentally upside down is the way I did something on something we call rotation order. So every shot would get rendered with the buzz droid, like going like this, but completely upside down. And so my, my supervisor, James Tooley put a, put a little button on the software with the buzz droid and a bandaid as the icon. And it was kind of like the Tim Naylor fix button. And that was on, that was like public shame, not intentional, but it was just like there for months of like, <laughs> Oh yeah, I screwed that up really, really bad. So every shot we had to like click the button and redo it, click the button and redo it. And I think it was maybe like six months after we were done with the space battle, I finally walked into my supervisor's office and said, Hey James, look, can we take down the band-aid button finally? He's like, Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> like, forgot about that. Yeah, take it down. And I just <laughs> always remember that as like, Yes, I sometimes it's okay to to know that you screwed up and and, and you have to own it and you have to fix it and it's all right and you, you know, you, it's how you react and respond to it. Um, it was a good lesson. It was a good lesson because everyone loved the rig. It just would walk upside down. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, that's so funny. So you're like getting shamed by all the animators and you're like, guys, I gave you this setup that makes it easier. Oh, no. And then, and then I had to fix it. And yeah, it was every time I launched my, it was like, there's my, there's the Tim Naylor fix it button. <laughs> oh, crud. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> But that, that's how it goes. That's how it goes. <laughs> it was fun. All right. So one of my favorite scenes, and I think a lot of people can agree with this, is uh, the fight between Anakin and Obi-Wan. Do you have any, um, you know, cool behind-the-scenes stuff while working on that? Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I, I got to work on the most of our scene, which was really fun to be able to work on part of that. Um, the <laughs> I, I had the dubious... Uh, kind of title of being the rope cable um, poor guy at ILM. So anything with like ropes and cables, they would throw at me and I would try to figure out how to do it. So there's a scene where they like jump on this cable that kind of bounces them together. So I had to rig that up and match animate like a bendable metal for their feet position because it was all blue screen. So I would grab the blue screen plate and then I, I had this CG kind of like pipe and I'd have to rig it and wire it so that it would bounce and move ever so slightly to match their feet. Um, and then there's a shot where the lava comes over that Mustafar kind of like sail bridge thing. 
where there's cables and lava comes over and breaks the cables. So I did that. A lot of physics sims on, on those things. So that was fun. The thing that I remember really enjoying about the Mustafar scene was the, was the set that was built on the ILM stage. So we had this, uh, what we called C theater, the C building and C stage. And they built like the lava river live at ILM. And it, there was this like heyday of visual effects where there was this digital work happening and we were still doing live practical effects, which I absolutely loved seeing the craftsmanship and the work that went into that stuff. It was so special to watch. And, um, they brought in, so they carved this thing out. It was like three stories tall. And because it, because there was not really a way to do it uh, horizontally, and I'm sure that the practical guys are going to rip me to shreds after this because I'll probably describe it wrong. But basically, it was like on a, on a on an angle so they could film it like this, and they would get movement uh, through gravity. But what they did is they had all these like almost like heat lamps underneath, and they filled it with like the same milkshake stuff that you get from your McDonald's vanilla milkshake, right? Hmm. And and so we had these massive, huge cartons of this milkshake stuff being delivered to ILM every day, <laughs> just constant. And then you would just get this, it, it was this, the red and orange glow from underneath would give it that subsurface orangey glow, the consistency of that liquid sh- milkshake. And they literally would break Oreos on top of it to get that like crunchy lava rock flowing through. And so it was like the, the largest world's largest for a day at least it was the world's largest like orange creamsicle shake ever produced by man, but it was for episode three and it was just fascinating to watch, you know, the camera do it and, and then go through and track out where the camera was going to go and, and to film, um, to film it. And I just appreciated the craftsmanship watching someone build this, you know, build out a set design, how they can get the lighting to look right to get the flow of what lava should look like, but using milkshakes and Oreos and red lights underneath and to get this, the, the look so beautiful and then to watch it turn into film and to be even anywhere near that was a real like um, childhood dream. Like there's something to work on computer graphics and creatures, but there's something else to like walk past the stage and watch these true artisans like, do their version of their skill and craft that's different than yours. But to see the marry of, you know, how the two come and marry together in that sequence was really powerful to me because of all the other sequences, that was the one that had the most direct physical build that I got to witness and see. So that was cool. That's, that's truly amazing hearing that. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. It was really incredible. Which I I was going to say that, um like i f- i feel like that's a that really speaks testament to a lot of the kind of prequel haters who go on the idea of it's all just cgi and in my opinion i think the prequels merge really well kind of the best cgi of that time with a fair amount of really good practical effects yeah i'm i'm not a cg pure cgi purist person i i love practical i felt like um like as an example, even though I understand why we did it digitally on the space battle, I, I felt like the look of a practical 
shoot on a model space ship in the Star Wars universe had a visceral feel that we that we related to so much that it, that we wanted to see the same effect again. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I always I always think that there's a place for solid practical effects and always appreciate when they're on screen. Yeah, I think there's like it's different tools, right? And you're supposed to use the tool that's going to give you the best look for this particular thing. There's no rule that you shouldn't use it anymore just because you can do certain things in CGI. And unfortunately, things come down to cost and time and budget and schedule. But I, I've always appreciated the practical um, aspects to filmmaking and how amazing things can make things look. It's pretty incredible. You uh, you telling that story about the large creamsicle and uh, Oreos just for some reason picture in my head I, I could see like Hayden Christensen screaming I hate you and then like grabbing some Oreos and eating them and Obi-Wan like walking by and being like oh hello there and picking up a full Oreo that wasn't crushed and then keep on walking like <laughs> there's there was some good bloopers on there I don't know if it's on the DVDs or not but there's we would see sometimes some bloopers from the set and like I remember um and ILMers were so into doing certain things like there's this there's a shot that I distinctly remember of, you know, off camera um, of uh, Ewan McGregor, like lifting up his wooden, the wooden version of his lightsaber and like fake, you know, like lighting his cigarette to it, you know, like just <laughs> fake, right? Someone at ILM got a hold of that and did the lightsaber effect on it. So literally, like as he went like this the real lightsaber effect turned on and he lit his cigarette off of it. I don't know if that, I don't know if you could find that footage or not, but people would spend like extra time to do funny blooper things using their skills. It was, it was hysterical sometimes to watch the blooper, the blooper stuff at times. Yeah. I love that. Now uh, uh, you kind of mentioned on it with the practical effects versus CGI. Um, what other scenes do you feel like they kind of merged really well with both using both practical and CGI? Oh, well, okay. Well, if, if I can do it without the star Wars, uh, there, there was, okay. So at ILM, um, there was this thing called the slab and you would, if, uh, where I was at in an E building, it was like, to, all I remember is it was to my left and it was just literally, the reason they call it the, the slab was, it was just flat concrete, but it was an area where we could blow stuff up. And so anytime explosions were happening, you would hear over the PA system, loud bang on the slab, loud bang on the slab. And invariably, every CG person like me who is stuck to their computer all day would run out of the building to see what we were blowing up. Because there's nothing like blowing stuff up right in real life. You'd have the fire department there, you know, all that. Why I remember was there was two parts to that was number one is we had to do a on pirates there were two memories that i have is one there was a, a night scene where they were like firing off cannons and they built a moon practically and literally raised the moon super high in the sky on the slab and so you would walk out like if you're working at night one we were working at night on something and i went to go like get dinner and all of a sudden you turn and look and it looked literally like there was a moon in the sky but it was for the pirates movie because they built like this weird oblong spherical looking moon that would look right based on where their camera was. And so when you would look at it, you'd like, is that the, is that the moon? That's what is happening? And like, Oh, it's the pirate shoot tonight. Oh, it's the pirate. So that's the pirates moon. Oh, okay, cool. Um, 
but they had it illuminated. It was, it was crazy. Then the other one is they built, um, I can't remember what the ship was in the pirates movie that blew up where they detonated it, but they built, I can't, I can't remember the name of the ship in the movie, but literally they built one of these ships and it felt like it was like a quarter scale and it was so detailed and we would watch him build it out there and they would build it in the, in the shop. And then they, one day they moved it out onto the slab and it was the, it was like, if you were, a, you know, like when I was a kid, I would make plastic models, right? Like I would make, you know, airplanes and tanks and try to do little dioramas. This was like this stuff on like NASA level. It was the most beautiful, beautiful thing I've ever seen. It was wood. It was every piece of paint. It was weathered perfectly. It had real rope that was miniature rope, real sails. I mean, it was, I've never seen anything like it. And all we heard was loud bang on the slab. And everyone ran out. And in like two seconds, boop, they just hit the button and blew up the whole darn thing. And there was miniature wood shrapnel everywhere. <laughs> but, it, but it was like, and I'm surprised that the guys who built it didn't go away weeping like, you know, those guys when, you know, Luke killed the, the Rancor, right? You know, those guys who were weeping oh, together. Yeah. You're like, oh, <laughs> right? <laughs> like that weeping over like something that was yours. Like, I'm surprised the guys didn't go off and just weep or get a beer or something after they blew up, blew it up because you can't get it back. And it was the most beautiful ship recreation I've ever seen. So those guys, I, in terms of practical, the merriment of practical and then seeing it on film, I, I've never seen anything like it. It was, it was, it's a, it was true ILM. That's one of those where you have one take and you better not F it up. That's like you spend months putting the little paint things on there and you, you're twisting the little miniature rope and wrapping it around. Like they really would on the real thing. And you're doing all this stuff and you're up late at night and there's pizza everywhere. And you know, you're kind of half drunk on coffee and some kind of beer after weeks and weeks and weeks. And someone just clicks a button and two seconds later, it's all gone. And that, that's the job. And it's just unbelievable to watch. Whereas computer graphics, we get take after take. And, but to watch them put that kind of level in their craft was pretty, pretty incredible. A completely I, I, side note, some of the people that worked on that kind of stuff, and, and um, I got to know Kim Smith and um, a visual effects supervisor on Bill George, were asked to go to the Smithsonian. Speaking of painting and crafting, they got to go to the Smithsonian and help repaint the original Enterprise to ILM multiple island people that's cool that's so cool that's dope uh, and she she would send us back pictures of the process so we could see because she went to washington and um and kim would send us these amazing pictures of the of them like rewiring the enterprise and repainting it like and what i mentioned before about them doing like real res, almost like restorative artwork kind of stuff there's people at island that could do that kind of work i've never been at a uh, one single place that had much artistic force. It was kind of amazing to watch. Yeah. So speaking of like the slab and practical effects and stuff, I don't know if you've seen the background or the documentary for the Mandalorian and then talking about using the volume. Um, wh what's your opinion of that? And like, would you have loved to work on something using that kind of technology? I love doing like the more, so the challenge in watching the prequels and, and hearing some of the actor responses, even, and this isn't just a star Wars issue. This was a Lord of the Rings issue is that um, I'm of the school of thought that when actors are placed 
more in their more in the environment where their character would naturally be clues and cues to that environment it helps them register the character and performance even more when you only have stark blue or green everywhere you see it's you're making it so much harder for an actor even i I know that that's their job but it 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 should be this integrated symbiotic effort for people to be in their environment because we no matter how no matter how well you think um actors should be able to perform we all take our cues from our environment that's why people spend so much time to set dress a, a set right that's why they that's why they spend time that's why production designers have jobs is because we have to set the stage and when actors come onto that it there's a natural effect of helping them um, get into those roles when you're in a sterile environment uh, it's more of a challenge so what I loved about Mandalorian pre-pro and the virtual pro is technology getting to the point where we can see more um, more sci-fi and non-real stage setting that helps the actors out and I think that's a re- I think that's a very healthy thing personally I we did um I left ILM and we did, I, I had another company with some people and we went down to um, do a test of some new technology that we were writing for um, Jungle Book. We we're, we we're going to do a little prototype test. Um, so just in terms of visual, virtual production, I think it's a really unique space. Um, I think it's where directors have probably more leeway to test ideas. And so we see, I think there's still a lot of evolution going on in the technology to enable virtual production. I think immersivity, or I don't even know if that's the right word, but, you know, bringing an immersive experience to the cast and the actors on set is not a negative thing. As long as you do it in the schedule and the budget, I think it helps performances. I think you get, you can get reaction on the director's vision, the director of photography's vision, you know, the cinematographer and the way that they're responding to these things. Um, I think it's, I think it's a good thing. I think it's exciting um, and might even help um, enable shows that would typically have a larger budget because it's so sci-fi. And when you're developing worlds that aren't really there, that are difficult to build practically, I think this might enable larger scale things to happen on a different budget. So for your sci-fi fan, you should be a fan of, um, virtual production and enabling that kind of tech. That's where I'm at. Yeah, and I mean, first of all, shout out to Ro from uh, Red Five Network for giving us that question on the volume. But I'd imagine too, also like because you mentioned a lot of physics engines and that rigging. Too, I like the how they use kind of the gaming engines like Unreal Engine too to give previous mm-hmm. to the directors. So you mentioned how Correct. like the volume gives so much extra to the actors and then the unreal engine gives so much to the directors. It's like you guys are just giving them all the tools they need. Exactly. And and, and, and in the end, um, we want to see technology enable better storytelling and better characters. And so, I mean, I, I, I'm not necessarily a fan for tech on, on set for, for it to just be there. Um, but where you have a purposeful technology to help a director understand whether or not their vision is actually coming to life, 
how to interface with a cinematographer in terms of camera, which is a world I don't fully get or understand, but it's pretty fascinating to see and watch. And actors get um, real-time feedback and cues and clues. I think it just builds a more cohesive unit to get a character and story portrayal that's going to be better for audiences. And hopefully it enables a different type of storytelling so we can experience different worlds and larger scale worlds that normally might not make it, you know, to the screen or to a, a streaming platform that we want. We want more content of that scale. Um, and it's harder to make these things, right? It's just harder to, it's harder for studios to buy off on a $200 million one shot unicorn of a film in a sci-fi space, wondering if they're going to be able to make that investment back and whether or not, you know, they can build it into a universe is a pretty hard sell for a studio these days. And so anything that brings that budget into a, a different scope um, could really help. So I kind of see it from a, I kind of see it from a capability perspective of, Hey, if this gives us a capability to build bigger worlds for less expensive, um, then we get more, we get more content capable um, offerings to the public is what I'm, I think it might be a natural byproduct we're hoping. Yeah, it kind of, and I don't know if I'm interpreting what you're saying right, but it kind of takes down the barriers of budget to a large extent on the, the creativity. That's the idea. That, that's what I would hope out of it, right? Is that you're, you know, if you're building a, if you want an immersive sci-fi world, that is a lot to undertake and that's a lot of budget. And so if you can cut corners and still preserve quality, like in the, in the, the way that they're doing some of their production methodology on Mandalorian and see that replicated or commoditized in a way that allows larger worlds, larger scope film to be made at and cut off some of the budget. That means we can get more things greenlit from a studio because we're getting into that budget sweet spot, but yet we're still offering a larger world to the audience. Maybe that maybe that will be one of the um, byproducts of this. I'm just thinking that this is gonna like in my head of like my mind's like exploding, being like, oh my gosh, we're gonna get so much more content, and there's already so much content out that I'm like, how am I gonna be able to consume all of this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, that's the the content overload is true for sure. Now, maybe for our final question here, I'd like to kind of take a step back to the prequels. So in Star Wars is unfortunately a large group of toxic fandom who basically only show love to the original trilogy. Now, as somebody who's worked on the prequels, how do you think these movies enhance someone's viewing of not only the original trilogy, but the overall idea of Skywalker saga and Star Wars? Right. Um, you know, I, I think one of the, uh, one of the things that stood out to me at the prequels that, made sense was um, justification for villainy. What, what in the world do I mean by that? Well, you know, when, when uh, an empire, when, when Vader's saying, you know, we can bring order and peace back to the galaxy, uh, not to knock the, that trilogy, but I never felt like that was the fullness of why you need to be a villain at Vader's dark side. Like, to bring order and peace, there's a lot of good meaning people that probably would want the same thing that don't need to like choke their commanders <laughs> and toss them to the side and go, uh, well, this is how I decide to do order and peace in the galaxy. So there, I always felt like there was, um, every villain 
needs to think in their mind that what they're doing is right and just, not just right in their mind. It has to be justified. It has to be, this is why I'm, this is the why in who I am. And it's, and it's internally justified because of X, Y, and Z. And, um, with Vader's explanation of that, of, or, you know, you know, let's rule and, and, rule for why because you want power well you want to bring order and peace to the galaxy and like it kind of juxtaposed a little bit of his villainry for me but when you know palpatine though we knew he was palpatine was explaining to anakin about you know how you could bring people back from the dead because you knew the dark side now i will do whatever i need to do in order to have that capability because i want to be able to bring back whoever i want that, to me, was a deeper explanation of why a villain can justify the means in which they are set out to do their thing. Why have they chosen that path? Because it's their reasoning has to be right and just in their own mind. So if, if I had to pick the one thing that was established in the prequels that we kind of didn't get as established in the original trilogy, it would be the true reasoning of what the Sith really wanted. And that was never really explained to the level that made Darth Vader as villainous. This might be heresy, but for me, it was, it, it was when I can get the power of resurrection and I will do whatever it takes to get that so that I can determine who has value that I can have my own, I can have my, the ability to raise myself now we're now we're in a different league of villainy, and it attaches the real justification for why Anakin would see power on the dark side. That for me kind of went, oh, okay. That from a from from a we need a villain to be so on focused on their path. Now I now I get it. That's why these decisions were made by him, and we needed that establishment, which wasn't delivered in my mind, in its totality during Empire. And I'd add on to that kind of off of your point that I think the prequels added more of a justification or uh, may maybe more of a viewer longing for the redemption of Vader. Because in Return of the Jedi, you kind of, and this might also be blasphemous, you kind of want Vader to redeem more so because you want Luke to win. Um, but then mm-hmm. if you watch the prequels, you want Vader to re- be redeemed because you care for Anakin and you care for him. And I think that's something the prequels right. add a lot more. Yeah, he was clearly a tormented soul. Like he couldn't, let's take acting out. <laughs> let's take some things out. There were a couple moments where he wasn't able to regulate himself, right? That became clear. And that's like a tormented soul. And if you have an empath- empathetic bone in your body, you would like to see that aspect resolved for him. And it just never seemed to get there. And that was a, that's a, that's a tragic aspect of his character. Yeah. I, I feel like uh, the best villains are people are sympathetic characters and um, having the whole prequel made uh, that character much more sympathetic than if you just watched the original trilogy. I totally agree. It was, it was the ability to, it was the ability to, well, what did we need? We needed the empathetic aspect to, to see what Luke saw and we needed a deeper justification for why he chose the dark side. And I think regardless of all the other issues that people might bring up about 
the prequels, at least those two thematic aspects to the story arc overall were presented to us as an audience. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such a huge thing that enhances your viewing of the uh, original trilogy, of the sequel trilogy, and just all of Star Wars material. But I just want to thank you again so much, Tim, for coming on the show here. Um, if, is there anywhere that our viewers can go to, our listeners can go to, to either learn more about you or to see some of your other work besides just obviously going on Disney Plus and watching episode two and three? <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn as Tim Mailer. I don't, I don't do, um, I, I'm not really, I, I haven't caught the social media bug. I don't like doing much self promotion stuff. So, um, you can find me on LinkedIn if, if you want and send me a message. I, I love talking to people about this and, you know, fun, fun behind the scenes stories. I always, and the ability to, um, just appreciate people's work and how hard they labor in these efforts of making these films come to life is pretty incredible. So. Lots of people put this stuff together. It's pretty pretty awesome. Absolutely. And like usual, guys, you can get in touch with us on Twitter at Podwars Podcast and on Gmail at askpodwarspodcast at gmail.com. And have a great week.